I have to put you on to Armoire, the convenient solution to effortless, fresh, and stylish dressing. With an Armoire membership, you can curate the perfect wardrobe with high-quality, unique brands tailored specifically to your taste. Simply take a five-minute style quiz, select items from your personalized closet, then your chosen styles arrive at your doorstep in as little as two days. When it's time for a wardrobe refresh, just swap out your current pieces for new-to-you styles. I go from professional to the carpool pickup line, so I need a diverse wardrobe. With Armoire, I always have something fresh and on-trend for any occasion, without the clutter. I recently edited my wardrobe to staple pieces only because Armoire allows me to add new pieces monthly and return them just in time for me to do it all over again. And by renting, rather than constantly buying new clothes, I'm contributing to sustainability. Armoire is currently helping me through my chic era with all the high fashion and edgy options that I am loving. And the empowering aspect of supporting a women-founded and women-led business is so cool. With their personalized styling suggestions and diverse designer offerings, Armoire has helped me define and refine my personal style, even as trends evolve and my body changes. Whether it's a date night, a professional event, a formal affair, or just a trip to the grocery store, Armoire ensures that I am always dressed to impress effortlessly. Right now, my listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murderish. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murderish to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. Hey everyone, it's Jamie. Today, I'm re-releasing an episode of Murderish that covers the case of Lisa Harnum, a 30-year-old woman who died as a result of her then-fiancé, Simon Gitney, throwing her from the 15th floor balcony of their apartment in Sydney, Australia. Sadly, before her violent death, Lisa Harnum was very close to escaping her killer. The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. This episode includes details about coercive control and intimate partner abuse, as well as mention of an eating disorder. Listener discretion is advised. On the morning of Saturday, July 30th, 2011, The weather in Sydney, Australia was perfect. There were blue skies up above. It was sunny and the temperature was inching up to the mid-60s. On Liverpool Street, across the street from Hyde Park, people were having breakfast at the Canopy Cafe, which was located on the bottom floor of a new, upscale, 34-floor apartment building called the Hyde. The area was abuzz with people enjoying a meal, walking to work, and going about their usual day. Only, this day would turn out to be anything but usual. At 9.55 a.m., numerous people were jolted from their activities and witnessed to something they would likely never forget. This is Jamie, and you're listening to Murderish. Join me as I walk you through the case of Lisa Harnum.
This case takes us to Sydney, Australia. The Commonwealth of Australia is one of 54 sovereign states that comprise the Commonwealth of Nations. These states are independent and self-governing countries, but still recognize Queen Elizabeth II as head of the Commonwealth. Australia, the sixth largest country in the world, is divided into six states and two mainland territories, which function similarly to states. The six states are New South Wales, Queensland, South Australia, Tasmania, Victoria, and Western Australia. The two mainland territories are the Australian Capital Territory and the Northern Territory. On that unforgettable Saturday morning in Sydney, the first people to realize something was wrong were Charles and Susan Glanville. From their apartment on the 15th floor of the Hyde, they were startled by someone pounding on their door, and as reported by Amy Dale in 2014, a female voice screaming, Please help me, help, God help me. Their apartment door was literally shaking from the force of the pounding. Then, the screaming and pounding stopped as suddenly as it had begun. After a few minutes, Susan took the elevator to the first floor where she waited for Charles. There, she saw her neighbor from apartment 1503, whom she knew only as Simon. He was sitting in the foyer. Across the street from the Hyde, Josh Rathmel, an editor at ABC's headquarters in Australia, also heard screaming as he walked through Hyde Park on his way to work. Rathmel turned and looked toward the Hyde, where he saw a shirtless man holding a large black object in his arms. He thought the object might be a large suitcase or a garbage bag. Then, he saw the man drop whatever he was holding. Rathmal continued on to work, but he couldn't forget what he saw. On the next street, he saw two construction workers looking back toward what was quickly becoming a crowd on the sidewalk of the Hyde apartment building. It was then that he realized what he saw falling from the balcony was not a suitcase or a garbage bag. It was a person. The man Rathmel saw earlier on the balcony was now wearing a shirt, but he still had on the same red pajama bottoms. Convinced that this was the same man he had seen carrying what looked like a garbage bag or a suitcase, Rathmel rushed to work and contacted police. 15-year-old Yudo Yushioka had been swimming laps with his brother and was walking to the bus stop when he heard a noise from up above. He looked up and saw an object falling to the ground. He soon learned that it was actually a young woman who'd fallen to the ground. When he looked up again, Yoshioka saw a shirtless man with his hands up, making a fist-pumping motion and then disappearing from the balcony. Yoshioka then got on a bus to go home, but a few minutes later, he saw police cars and ambulances heading toward the scene. He decided to get off the bus to tell a police officer what he had witnessed. Dr. Angus Gray, an orthopedic surgeon, was driving toward the hide when he saw something land on the pavement. He pulled over and ran to the woman's body. Ray Morris, who'd been eating at the cafe, was already there. She was able to keep other people away while Dr. Gray looked over the woman who had no pulse. He then began performing CPR. As Kieran McCaffrey, a medical student who'd heard the commotion, stood by Dr. Gray, he heard a male voice ask what happened. Since he didn't actually see what happened, Kieran wasn't sure how to respond. 
According to Amy Dale's reporting, the man then said, that's my fiance. McCaffrey was taken aback by the man's comment and his calm demeanor. During his three years in medical school, McCaffrey had seen various reactions from people who'd lost a loved one. This man's reaction seemed much different from anything he'd seen before. The man then bent down toward the woman lying on the ground, and according to the same article, he said, come back baby, come back. He then started poking her in the head with one of his fingers in a somewhat aggressive manner. Dr. Gray asked Ray Morris to get the man out of his way so he could continue performing CPR on the woman. Ray then guided the man's hand off the woman's face and moved him away so Dr. Gray could continue rendering aid. Soon, it became apparent that the woman was already dead. Dr. Gray observed that ribs on both sides of her chest were broken. Her spine was fractured, her back was broken, as was at least one of her legs. The broken and battered woman would later be identified as 30-year-old Lisa Harnum. Lisa Cecilia Harnum was born in Toronto, Canada on June 12, 1981. She grew up not knowing her father. Her mother, Joan, had a son named Jason from a previous relationship, who was eight years older than Lisa. Lisa, Jason, and their mother were very close. Lisa Julie, Lisa's cousin, was the same age as her, and the two of them shared a very tight relationship, more like sisters than cousins. At a very young age, Lisa began taking dancing lessons. She was said to have an ability to make the audience watch her perform. When she grew older, as more of the students in her dance classes left to focus on other things, Lisa continued dancing and performing. When she was 17, Lisa began struggling with an eating disorder. Eventually, her bulimia got worse and she ended up in the hospital. Although she was able to get it under control with treatment, Lisa constantly worried that her eating disorder would someday return. In 2004, Lisa met a man from Melbourne, Australia, who was visiting Canada. During her interactions with the man, Lisa decided she wanted to move to Australia. By the time she moved, however, Lisa was no longer interested in this man, but still wanted to stay in Australia. She began working for a perfume company, but soon decided she wanted to become a hairdresser. Lisa enrolled in the Australian College of Hair and Beauty in Sydney and worked at the college to pay for her tuition. After Lisa Harnum was found dead, Detective Jacob Rex, Detective Senior Constable Darren Paul, and Detective Sergeant Brett Wall began investigating her death, starting at the Hyde apartment building where she was found. Lisa's fiance, Simon Gitney, was quickly identified as the shirtless man standing on the balcony that morning. While being questioned by detectives, Gitney insisted that Lisa had jumped over the railing. He told Sergeant Wall that she had been sitting on the couch while he was in the kitchen making her hot tea. Then, according to Amy Dale's article, Gitney said, she just walked out onto the balcony. She got over the rail. I said, what are you doing? I tried to grab her, but I couldn't hold her. Detective Rex asked Gitney about any problems in their relationship. As reported by Amy Dale, Gitney said, we had a fight last night. 
We just worked out it was better for her to go home to Canada. I woke up this morning and she was packing her bags. She said, you told me to leave and I'm leaving. She grabbed her black handbag and went to leave through the front door. I stopped her. She started to raise her voice and she was yelling. And I yelled back, shut the fuck up. I was in the kitchen. I saw her pass towards the balcony. I remember thinking, what is on the balcony? I saw her step over the railing onto the little cliff face. I ran towards the railing and I can't remember. I was trying to hold her from falling. I was just grabbing at her. I don't know. I might have had a handbag or a jacket and then she was gone. During a search of the couple's apartment, detectives found three video cameras which were installed inside. One of them, which became activated when motion was detected, was facing toward the hallway. The second camera had a view from the living room looking out onto the balcony. The third camera had a view from the balcony looking toward the front door. As detectives watched footage recorded by the cameras, they saw Gitney on the morning that Lisa died. Right after Lisa had fallen from the balcony, Gitney was seen on the footage shirtless and walking to the elevator. The footage captured him turning around and going back into the apartment. Then, he was seen going back into the hallway with a shirt on, where he waited for the elevator. On footage recorded by the elevator camera, Gitney was seen repeatedly making angry motions with his arms while he was being taken down to the lobby. Further review of the video footage uncovered a very frightening scene. Sergeant Wall saw footage of Lisa running from the apartment and then Gitney's arm pulling her back inside. Detective Sergeant David Weeks and his team discovered two of Lisa's suitcases inside of the apartment. Although they were packed, it was in a manner that appeared very unorganized, as if someone had grabbed whatever they could and stuffed it in the suitcases as fast as possible. Lisa's travel bag was with the suitcases and her passport was inside. Detective Weeks thought that if Gitney was telling the truth about Lisa leaving for Canada, it was odd that she would have packed her bags in such an unorganized manner. Lisa Gordon, a fingerprint technician, arrived at the apartment later that day to dust for prints. On the balcony, she found a palm print on top of the railing that matched Gitney. Absent from the balcony railing, however, were any prints that could be matched to Lisa. Police soon began interviewing witnesses, and there were plenty. Josh Rathmel spoke with Detective Rex, and according to Amy Dale's article, he told him, I saw a man throwing what appeared to me to be black luggage or a suitcase from the balcony. Just through the top of the trees above the leaves, there was a man from my perception without a shirt on, carrying what I thought at the time was a black suitcase or luggage. The day after Lisa died, an autopsy was performed by Dr. Kendall Bailey, a pathologist at the New South Wales Department of Forensic Medicine. He was supervised by senior pathologist Joe Duflo. Although Lisa was 5 feet 7 inches tall, Dr. Bailey measured her at only 5 feet due to numerous broken bones resulting from her fall. Her entire body was covered with scrapes and bruises, and her organs had noticeable damage. 
Dr. Bailey found that Lisa's back was broken, her spine was fractured, and she had at least two broken limbs. He believed Lisa landed on a hard surface before falling onto the pavement because she had scrapes on her head, a broken nose, and a chipped tooth that he said occurred right before death but did not come from landing on the sidewalk. A drug test concluded that Lisa had no alcohol or drugs in her system except for aspirin. Dr. Kendall concluded that the cause of death was blunt force trauma due to falling from the balcony. Given all of the evidence that they had gathered, three days after Lisa's death, detectives arrested her fiance, Simon Gitney, and escorted him to the Surrey Hills Police Station, where a DNA sample was taken. Gitney was asked if he wanted to take part in an interview with detectives, but he declined. Simon Gitney was born in suburban Sydney, Australia on November 1, 1973, to Syed and Lamia Gitney. He was the second of six children, having one older brother and four younger sisters. Growing up, Simon was never expected to do chores, laundry, clean his room, or do anything around the house. His mother reportedly did everything for him. In January of 2010, Lisa Harnum was sharing an apartment with a friend named Amalia Caravea. She and Amalia were close, but their relationship became strained when Lisa reportedly had an affair with a married man named George Karam. Lisa decided to move out, but didn't have anywhere to go. Karam called his friend, 37-year-old Simon Gitney, to ask if Lisa might be able to stay in the spare bedroom of his apartment. Karam, Lisa, and Gitney met one night to talk about it, and right away, Lisa and Gitney connected. Gitney told Lisa she was welcome to stay in his spare bedroom, and after moving in, Lisa and Gitney became very close. They spoke a lot about her relationship with Karam, and Lisa would say she knew it wasn't going to work out. She wanted to get married and have children, but she couldn't get that from Karam because he was already married. Soon, Lisa broke things off with Karam and began dating Gitney. A few months into their relationship, however, problems arose as Gitney became more and more controlling. Lisa left the Australian College of Hair and Beauty around May of 2010 after Gitney pressured her to stop working. She told her mother, Joan, that he also did not want her wearing dresses anymore. He wanted her to wear pants and dress more conservatively. Gitney gave Lisa a new cell phone shortly after they began dating, which he would use to keep tabs on her. In September of 2010, the couple moved into a new 34-story high-rise luxury apartment building called The Hyde. Gitney signed a one-year lease for $1,600 per week. Before the end of the year, Gitney had video cameras installed inside the apartment, saying they were for security reasons. On November 15th, two months after moving into the new place, Lisa sent a text message to her mother saying they had stopped going to nightclubs because of Gitney's behavior. According to court documents, she wrote in the text message that Gitney gets so uptight and gets uncomfortable with all of the guys around. According to Amy Dale's 2014 article, Lisa's text messages to her mother further read, I feel trapped, like I have to watch everything I say, do, feel, everything. 
I got in trouble yesterday because I said that I felt cold. Lisa had considered ending their relationship, but she was trying to get permanent residency in Australia and was afraid that Gitney would ruin it if she left him. Apparently, Gitney had told her that if she broke up with him, he would make sure she did not get permanent residency. It was around this time that Gitney began referring to Lisa by her middle name, Cecilia. Later in 2010, Lisa was planning a trip back to Toronto to attend the wedding of her uncle, Joseph. Lisa called her mother to tell her that Gitney, who had made her travel arrangements, scheduled her for a flight that took off after Joseph's wedding. She told her mom that Gitney refused to change her to another flight so she could make it in time. During another phone call before she left Sydney, Lisa told her mother that Gitney had instructed her to only spend time with family while she was in Toronto and not to see any of her friends. When Lisa finally arrived in Toronto, she had to keep her cell phone on her at all times because Gitney was constantly texting and calling. If Lisa didn't answer immediately, he would get mad at her. One day, while Lisa and Joan were out together, Gitney started screaming at Lisa when he found out they were at the mall and he demanded to know what she was wearing. Another day, while they were at Joan's house watching a movie, Gitney called again and he and Lisa got into an argument. Joan grabbed her daughter's phone and asked Gitney to let them finish watching the movie. Gitney told her he was just trying to help Lisa. He then proceeded to tell Joan about all the things he did for her, going on and on for so long that Joan put the phone down and went back to watching the movie. She would pick the phone back up every now and then to check if Gitney was still yelling. She finally asked if he was done. Eventually, Gitney said he was and hung up. Lisa flew back to Toronto to visit her mother again in December of 2010 for Christmas. Joan noticed that her daughter dressed much more conservatively, mostly in black and gray, and her hair was pinned back instead of styled. She wore flats instead of heels, and the long nails she always had were gone. She was also much quieter than usual. Lisa didn't visit or even contact her cousin Julie, with whom she was extremely close. Apparently, Gitney had given Lisa strict orders regarding how she was to act, and like before, he called and sent text messages to her repeatedly. On December 27th, Lisa received two text messages from Gitney. As reported by Amy Dale, one of them read, Please don't let any guy talk to you today, and please don't look at any guys, as your eyes should only gaze on me, the one. The other message read, Where are you? What's it called? And take a pic of what you're wearing. I'll call you soon, okay? Even though I told you to call me before you went, Cecilia. Selective hearing. The following year, back in Sydney, Lisa was getting increasingly bored being inside the apartment all the time. She wanted to go back to work, so Gitney spoke to an acquaintance of his, Stephen Hanna, who owned a salon. Lisa told her mother that Gitney arranged with Stephen for her to work without pay as a receptionist instead of being a paid hairdresser. Hannah would later claim that Lisa worked for free at first, but eventually he paid her $20 per hour in cash. 
On June 12, 2011, Lisa's 30th birthday, Gidney planned a big celebration at a restaurant with his family and friends where he proposed to Lisa, and she said yes. When she spoke with her mother about looking at wedding dresses back in Canada during her next visit, Lisa said Gitney told her he would let her know when she could start planning the wedding. She said he thought she was rushing things and she wasn't supposed to do anything else until he was ready to start planning. The following month, Gitney spoke to Lisa Brown, a trainer at the gym where he worked out. Gitney asked Brown to train Lisa and the two women met on July 13th. They got along well, and it's likely that Lisa opened up to the trainer because she eventually recommended a counselor she knew named Michelle Richmond. Brown thought Lisa would benefit from speaking with Richmond. When both Lisas returned to Lisa and Gitney's apartment, Gitney demanded to know what the two women talked about at the gym. Lisa Brown brushed it off, saying that she couldn't speak with him about other clients, but that just made him angrier, so she told him they worked on Lisa's posture. Prior to their next appointment, Lisa Brown received a text message from Lisa Harnum asking to reschedule. Brown responded asking if she wanted to meet at the beach. Lisa Harnum replied that actually she was able to meet at the original time. When they met, Lisa told Brown that Gitney would not let her work out at the beach. She told Brown that one time she and Gitney had gotten into an argument after Gitney dropped her off at the apartment. Lisa left to get groceries, and while she was at the store, she got a call from Gitney. He told her to get back home within three minutes. Lisa said she had to leave her basket of groceries and run all the way home to make it in time. With all of the alarming details about their relationship out in the open, the two women began making a plan for Lisa to leave Gitney. They filled a couple of pillowcases full of clothes and took them to the gym that was located at the apartment building so Brown could put them in a storage unit. Lisa said that if Gitney found out that she was going to leave, he would throw her out with only the clothing she was wearing at the time. Around 2 a.m. on July 30th, Lisa was exchanging text messages with her mom. She and Joan were talking about booking a flight for Lisa to go back to Toronto. Around five o'clock that morning, Lisa called her mom and made these chilling statements. Mommy, remember, I love you and Jason with all my heart. Mommy, if anything happens to me, please contact Michelle. Mommy, read the information back to me, please. I want to make sure you have it correctly. This according to the 2014 article by Amy Dale. Lisa would be dead not long after that phone conversation with her mother. In New South Wales, there are three levels of general courts, lower courts, district courts, and the Supreme Court. Supreme Courts hear federal cases, civil cases involving amounts over $750,000, and criminal cases involving murder, treason, and piracy. The UK and some Commonwealth countries, including Australia, have two different types of attorneys, referred to as solicitors and barristers. The main difference for our purposes is that solicitors spend most of their time in an office setting assisting clients with legal issues, while barristers spend most of their time in court. Given the nature of Simon Gitney's charges, his trial would be heard in the Supreme Court. 
Gitney's lead defense counsel was Philip Strickland, an experienced barrister. Solicitor Abigail Bannister, who had worked in Gitney's committal hearing, which is similar to a preliminary hearing in the U.S., remained on the defense team. From the get-go, Gitney informed the court that he would not be able to afford his representation for more than a few weeks. He also did not believe that a jury would understand the forensic evidence that would be forthcoming in his trial. Gitney also claimed that due to the tremendous media exposure, he likely would not get a fair jury. For those reasons, Gitney asked Supreme Court Justice Lucy McCollum if his trial could be heard by a judge only. In 2011, a law passed in New South Wales which allowed defendants to request to have their cases heard by a judge instead of a jury. That said, the odds were stacked against Gitney as defendants who had previously requested a judge-only trial had all been denied. The Crown prosecution was led by Mark Tedeschi, the most experienced prosecutor in New South Wales. Tedeschi did not want Gitney to have a judge-only trial, but he believed he needed Josh Rathmel's witness testimony. Rathmel, who was now living in the U.S., had arranged with his new employer to return to Sydney for the last two weeks of October to testify. If Gitney's request for a judge-only trial was denied, there would be a delay, and Rathmel did not think he would be able to come back for the trial at a later time. In order to secure Rathmel as a witness, Tedeschi reluctantly told the court the prosecution would not oppose a judge-only trial. Although Justice McCollum disagreed with Gitney's belief that he could not get a fair trial due to the media coverage and that the forensic evidence would be too complicated for a jury to understand, she did agree that Gitney's lack of funds was indeed a factor. On October 14th, Justice McCollum ruled that Gitney's request for a judge-only trial was granted. A judge-only trial would be less expensive as jury trials typically take about six weeks, whereas judge-only trials usually take about four. The trial opened on October 21, 2013, a little over two years after Lisa's death. Gitney arrived on the first day of trial 30 minutes early, holding hands with his new girlfriend, 24-year-old Rachel Louise, a tall, attractive brunette. Onlookers were taken by how much Rachel resembled Lisa Harnum. Rachel had been friends with Gitney for years, and she also knew Lisa. She had been living in the U.S. for a while, and after returning to Australia, Rachel began dating Gitney in October of 2012. Gitney pleaded not guilty to murdering Lisa, in opening arguments, Tedeschi said the Crown will show that over time, Gitney became more and more controlling in his relationship with Lisa. He gave the examples of Gitney not allowing Lisa to work, cutting her off from friends, and undermining her relationship with her mother. Tedeschi told the court that Gitney monitored Lisa's phone and had cameras installed in the apartment so he could watch her. He said that when the defendant learned about Lisa giving some of her clothing to Lisa Brown, he knew she was leaving. Tedeschi showed five still photos from the video camera which were taken on the morning Lisa died. According to Amy Dale's article, Tedeschi described them one by one, saying that the first photo was Lisa attempting to leave the unit 
with the accused's arm outstretched reaching towards her. The second photograph shows the accused's arm reaching out around her head and neck area. The third photograph shows the accused's face and shoulders, his bare top. The fourth photograph shows a clear view of both their faces with his left hand around her mouth, attempting to prevent her from screaming. The fifth photograph shows him dragging her back towards the doorway. He told the court the Crown would show that no fingerprints of Lisa's were found on the railing or the balcony, which could only mean that she did not climb over the railing herself. This meant that Gitney threw her over. Philip Strickland from the defense said they would show that Gitney did not stop Lisa from working, did not prevent her from seeing friends, and did not threaten to interfere with her getting permanent citizenship. He said his client was bothered because Lisa told him that she had a secret that she was ashamed of and she could not tell him about it. This, he said, was the reason Gitney monitored Lisa's text messages and looked at the video cameras to see and hear what she was doing. According to Strickland, Gitney did this because he wanted to know Lisa's secret so he could help her. Strickland said on the morning of Lisa's death, Gitney kept asking her about the secret and told her that he had been reading her text messages because she wouldn't tell him what the secret was. He said they began to argue. Lisa yelled for help and then ran out of the apartment. He said Gitney pulled Lisa back inside and had her sit on the couch while he made her some hot tea. As reported by Amy Dale, Strickland said Lisa then ran out onto the balcony holding her handbag and he ran after her. By the time Simon got to the door of the balcony, Lisa had already got over the balcony railing. Her body and right leg were already on the opposite side. She then lost her footing, appeared to lose her balance, and she fell onto the 15th floor awning. Simon tried to grab or reach Lisa with both arms outstretched. He said Gitney tried to reach her but couldn't. He told the court that Lisa slid off the balcony, hit the awning of the apartment below them, and then fell to the ground. Strickland said the absence of Lisa's fingerprints on the balcony did not mean she had not tried to climb over the railing because there were a lot of smudges present from which the fingerprint analyst could not get clean prints. Lisa's mother, Joan Harnum, was the first witness for the prosecution. She said the first time she believed there was a problem in her daughter's relationship was when she was told that Gitney did not want Lisa going to the gym because he didn't like men watching her. She told the court about Lisa's trip home for the wedding and how Gitney scheduled the flight for a date that was after the date of the wedding. She also testified about Gitney telling Lisa he didn't want her seeing anyone but her family and that she shouldn't stay with anyone but her mother. Joan talked about Gitney constantly texting and calling, wanting to know where Lisa was and what she was wearing. She told the court about Lisa coming back to Canada over Christmas in 2010 and telling her mother that she did not understand how Gitney always seemed to know where she was. She said Lisa told her that Gitney did not want her wearing dresses any longer and made her throw away a lot of her clothes. Joan said that during Lisa's birthday party, she had dressed in an outfit that made someone think she was a waitress instead of the guest of honor. 
Jones spoke about the night of July 29th, when Gitney made Lisa call both Michelle Richmond and Lisa Brown and tell them never to contact her again because they had tried to help her leave him. According to Amy Dale's reporting, Joan told the court she said that he started yelling at her and telling her that she couldn't embarrass him and that she was to do as she was told and that she should submit. He had her on her knees in front of him. Lisa Brown, the trainer, testified that she and Lisa met three weeks before Lisa was murdered. The night before Lisa's death, Lisa Brown received a text message from Lisa Harnum's phone telling her to never contact her again and that she had ruined Lisa's life. Brown could not understand why Lisa was so angry with her. She responded to Lisa saying she only wanted to help. Brown never received a response from Lisa. Michelle Richmond, the counselor who was recommended by Lisa Brown, testified that Lisa Harnum told her that she and Gitney lived in an apartment that cost $1,600 per week. She said they ate at a lot of expensive restaurants and wore expensive clothes, despite Lisa not having a job. She told the court she didn't know what Gitney did for a living. She said he went out by himself all the time, and she didn't know what Gitney did or how he got the money to fund their lifestyle, though he did tell her that he was in the process of setting up some kind of home business. Richmond also testified that Lisa told her Gitney had made her quit working at Stephen Hanna's salon. She said that one day, Lisa had her hair done by one of the stylists, and when she got home, Gitney got so angry with her, he made her quit. Richmond also testified about two disturbing phone calls she received just two days before Lisa's death. On July 28th, she answered a call which came in from Lisa's phone, but nobody was on the other line. When she called back, Gitney answered Lisa's phone, and according to Amy Dale's reporting, he said, Michelle, you fucking bitch, if you ever come near Cecilia again, try to contact her or meet her, have anything to do with her, I know where you live, I will fucking harm you. Josh Rathmel, who the prosecution believed was crucial to their case, testified next. He told the court he heard a scream coming from the hive. When he looked up, he saw a man, Gitney, holding a black object. As reported by Amy Dale, Rathmel said, I saw the man unload the object off the balcony and in what I described as a fluid motion, almost completely immediately and bounced straight back into the apartment. He unloaded and the object began to fall. On cross-exam, Strickland said that perhaps what Rathmel actually saw was Gitney leaning over the balcony trying to catch Lisa. Rathmel responded saying that was not correct. He said his view of the balcony was clear with nothing to obstruct it and that when he first saw Lisa, she was in the process of leaving Gitney's hands. Strickland tried to get Rathmel to say he might have been wrong about what he saw. Rathmel said it was possible, but he didn't think so. On October 31st, Yudo Yoshioka testified that he was at the bus stop after he'd gone swimming with his brother. He told the court that he heard a noise and then he saw a body falling from the balcony. He then observed a man making what appeared to be a fist-pumping motion with his hands. On November 1st, 
Tedeschi showed the court video footage from the camera located inside of Gitney and Lisa's apartment. The camera, which had recorded video of the hallway, captured footage of Lisa running out of the apartment. Then it showed Gitney grabbing her and putting his hand around Lisa's mouth to stop her from screaming before dragging her back inside. Lisa's body landed on the ground at 9.55 and 13 seconds that morning. Twelve seconds later, a shirtless Gitney was seen leaving the apartment, going toward the elevator, then walking back into the apartment. At 9.56 and 8 seconds, he is shown coming back out of the apartment, this time wearing a shirt. He was then seen walking toward the elevators. Next, a police officer testified that he found a torn-up note inside of one of Lisa's pant pockets. After reassembling the note, he could see that it read, There are surveillance cameras inside and outside the house. On November 5th, the defense called their first witness. The courtroom must have been surprised when they saw Gitney walking toward the witness stand. Gitney, who at one point started referring to Lisa as Cecilia, testified that he never stopped her from going to the gym. He claimed that Lisa decided to stop because she wasn't following the trainer's advice. He said he didn't make Lisa quit her job either, and that he had gotten her a job at his friend's salon. Gitney told the court that Lisa quit the salon because she didn't like her co-workers. Regarding Lisa obtaining permanent residency in Australia, Gitney denied ever saying that he would interfere with that if she left him. He also denied that he stopped her from seeing friends or making new friends. Conversely, Gitney told the court that he introduced her to people he knew. When asked about making Lisa kneel to say she would submit to him, Gitney said that was not true. Gitney testified that in September of 2010, just before they moved into the hide, Lisa became emotional over dinner. He said she started crying and told him she had a secret she was ashamed of, but she couldn't tell him about it. He said he asked her about it a couple of months later, but Lisa still would not open up to him. When asked about being jealous, Gitney admitted that he was insecure and that he would bring up Lisa flirting with men and the way she dressed. He said when she went to Canada over Christmas in 2010, they both agreed she would stay with Joan and he would stay in their apartment, except to visit his family. He said his text messages asking what she was wearing were out of concern for Lisa. Gitney claimed that in his text messages, he would tell Lisa to eat because he was worried about her weight and overall well-being. Regarding the barrage of phone calls and text messages, Gitney claimed that this was one of Lisa's conditions while she was gone. When asked about the software he used to monitor Lisa's text messages, Gitney said he did this in order to find out the secret she was keeping from him. He said that after a few weeks, he didn't find anything useful, so for the most part, he stopped reading her messages. He admitted that occasionally, he would come back and read her messages and then stop again. On July 28th, Gitney said he saw Lisa Brown at the gym, and then he came home and read Lisa's text messages. While looking at Lisa's phone, he said he saw a text message to Michelle, asking her to give Lisa's clothes to Lisa Brown. Gitney testified that on the morning of Lisa's death, he got up early and he was on the computer watching porn, 
not looking at the cameras or reading Lisa's text messages as the Crown claimed. When asked about the final minutes of Lisa's life, Gitney said after she ran out of the apartment, he dragged her back inside to talk about the relationship. He had her sit on the couch while he made her some hot tea. He claimed that Lisa ran out to the balcony and stepped over the railing. He said he tried to save her, but she let go and fell to her death. Justice McCollum had Gitney show the court how he tried to go out on the rail of the balcony. Gitney attempted to explain it. According to Amy Dale's reporting, he said, it would be like if someone was lying down and just trying to, with the center of their body on the balcony rail, legs out like they are lying down in that position, and actually keeping my hand out and legs up to balance myself so I don't fall down. McCollum noted that Gitney reached forward with his right arm and then turned his right hand downward, then kicked his right leg up. Crown Prosecutor Tedeschi had tried cases with high-profile defendants before, and even those who disliked him could not criticize his abilities in the courtroom. On cross-exam, he began by getting Gitney to admit that grabbing Lisa, covering her mouth, and dragging her back into the apartment was, in fact, an act of serious aggression. Gitney also agreed that Lisa told him numerous times that she was leaving him. He said that the morning Lisa died was the first time that he had gotten violent with her when she threatened to leave him. Gitney also admitted that Lisa had been pounding on their neighbor's door and screaming for help. When asked why Lisa had run out of the apartment with nothing but her purse that morning, Gitney said this was because he asked to see the plane tickets she had to return to Canada. Tedeschi showed the court video footage from the camera which was located inside the apartment and pointed in the direction of the hallway. The footage showed Lisa running out and then being dragged back in. Tedeschi said that after Gitney dragged Lisa back into the apartment and pushed the door to try to close it, Lisa grabbed the door, trying to get out once again, but Gitney pulled her away and slammed the door shut. Gitney said this wasn't true, but he could not explain why the door opened again. Tedeschi said that if Gitney was telling the truth about Lisa sitting on the couch to talk to him, why would she not have put her purse down? Tedeschi said the only reason Lisa would still have had her purse when she was thrown over the balcony would have been if Gitney had physically restrained her. As reported by Amy Dale, Tedeschi asked the court why on earth would a woman sit down on a lounge and then run out and climb over a balustrade with her handbag on, as Mr. Gitney said. She's not going to need her handbag on the balcony. She's certainly not going to need it down the bottom. Tedeschi claimed that Gitney had been lying all along. After all, if Lisa's secret was such a big deal to him, why hadn't he mentioned it to detectives? The prosecution then moved on to Gitney's jealous behavior. Gitney said his jealousy stemmed from Lisa's previous relationships and because she wore clothing he believed was too revealing. He said that when she drank, she flirted with other men. Toward the end of his testimony, Gitney claimed that Lisa never needed his permission to leave their apartment. Strickland called Professor Richard Kemp to testify for the defense. 
Kemp told the court that the two hours that Josh Rathmel waited before telling police that he had seen a woman fall to her death was enough time to have possibly affected his memory. Strickland also called Professor Philip Hay, an expert on eating disorders. Professor Hay said that Lisa's bulimia may have caused her to experience stress at a higher level than others. Closing addresses or closing arguments, as they're referred to in the U.S., began on November 13th. Tedeschi started off by highlighting Gitney's abuse during the relationship and that during his testimony, Gitney blamed Lisa for everything. He highlighted for the court that Lisa believed Gitney was watching her, but she did not know for certain until just before she was murdered that he had been reading her text messages and watching her on camera. Tedeschi reminded the court about the note found in one of Lisa's pant pockets about there being cameras in the apartment. He said Lisa must have written that note for someone, but they will never know who that was. The prosecution said Gitney lied to police about the night before the murder and the morning of the murder. He told the court that Lisa tried to run away, only to be dragged back in against her will, and her life ended 69 seconds later. He said that if Lisa had really run out to the balcony to jump over, she would not have climbed over the left-hand side because there was a lounge chair on the right-hand side that she could have used. Also, if Lisa was going to jump, she would not have brought her purse with her. The only reasonable explanation, Tedeschi claimed, was that Gitney carried her to the balcony and threw her over. For the defense, Strickland said there were six factors that showed Lisa jumped over the balcony, though it's questionable just how these factors pointed to Lisa jumping over the balcony. Strickland said the argument over her belongings being placed in storage, the argument when Gitney found out she planned to leave, when Lisa realized Gitney had been reading her text messages, the argument when she had called her mother for the last time, asking her to come get her, Gitney dragging her back inside the apartment, and the remarks Gitney made to Lisa about screaming so loud the neighbors could hear her after she sat on the couch, all showed that Lisa had jumped over the balcony. By early afternoon on November 15th, both sides had rested their case. On November 27th, the court announced that Justice McCollum would deliver the verdict for Simon Gitney on the 30th. Lisa's mother Joan and her brother Jason were scheduled to fly back to Canada on that day, after waiting almost a week for the hearing. Given the circumstances, Air Canada graciously offered to move their flights to December 1st so they could be present for the verdict. Justice McCollum had prepared a written verdict that was over 100 pages long, which she read aloud to the courtroom. She spoke about Lisa's trip to Canada when Gitney made the plane reservations too late for Lisa to attend her uncle's wedding and told her not to spend time with anyone but her family. According to Amy Dale's reporting, McCollum said that by the end of that trip, she believed Lisa was being subjected to a degree of scrutiny and direction from the accused that was overbearing. Justice McCollum said she did not believe Gitney spied on Lisa because he wanted to know the secret she refused to tell him, because nobody testified at trial about a secret Lisa was keeping, not even her family. 
McCollum discussed the problems that arose when Lisa decided to leave Gitney and referred to the text messages that Lisa Brown and Michelle Richmond received from Lisa's phone, which McCollum believed were sent by Gitney or that he made Lisa send them. Gitney had claimed that on the morning Lisa died, he had gotten up early to get on the computer. He testified that he spent that time watching porn. Justice McCollum did not believe it. As reported by Amy Dale, McCollum said, I think it's more likely that he spent that half hour checking Lisa Harnum's emails and internet usage or trying to get into her SMS messages. She then turned to Gitney's claim that he tried to climb onto the balcony to save Lisa. McCollum said that the position Gitney claimed he put himself in on the balcony railing to reach Lisa was not possible. She also said that although there were no fingerprints found on the balcony matching Lisa, the absence of any fingerprints show that Lisa could not have climbed over the balcony as Gitney claimed, without leaving any fingerprints or palm prints. The testimony of Josh Rathmull was vital. McCollum said that she was able to see the balcony of apartment 1503 from the same place that Rathmull stood when he saw Lisa falling which led to her belief that Gitney was not telling the truth about trying to save Lisa. She said that from her view, there was no way someone on the balcony could reach out toward a person on the awning. After more than four hours, Justice McCollum was ready to render Gitney's verdict. According to Amy Dale's article, at 3.36 p.m., McCollum said, it follows that I am satisfied beyond reasonable doubt of the elements of the offense. I find the accused guilty of the murder of Lisa Cecilia Harnum. Rachel Louise, Gitney's new girlfriend, sprang from her seat screaming, you're wrong, over and over, as she moved toward the bench. Gitney's sisters had to hold Rachel back before officers escorted her out of the courtroom. After the verdict, Gitney was taken to Silverwater Prison, where he was placed in isolation and on suicide watch. Outside the courtroom, Joan Harnum said the family would continue to mourn Lisa and wanted her death to be a call for others to be aware of signs of domestic violence. She and Jason returned to Toronto the next day. They would not return for Gitney's sentencing. The Crown typically categorizes crimes in a range, either low, middle, or high. During sentencing hearings, reports may be submitted to show how the defendant is behaving in prison while awaiting sentencing. The judge uses this information, among other things, to determine the length of time they believe the defendant will need to be rehabilitated in order to return to society, if ever. During sentencing, Michelle Richmond read an impact statement from Joan and Jason Harnum. In it, they said that instead of murdering Lisa, Gitney could have simply let her leave and go back to Toronto to be with them. They said Lisa wanted to marry and have children someday, and Gitney took that from her along with her life just because she wanted to leave. Gitney took the stand again during his sentencing. According to Steve Pinnell's recording in the Sydney West Australian, he said, I was found guilty of a crime and I maintain my innocence I would never kill anyone. It is not who I am. I am a Christian, God-fearing. I believe in God, always have. I would never, ever kill anybody. Gitney's sister, Barbara, said that her brother was depressed and wasting away in prison. 
Rachel Louise testified that Gitney was not abusive to her and that he was the best boyfriend she ever had. She also said she would stand by him. Tedeschi asked the court to consider Lisa's size compared to Gitney's as a contributing factor in order to send a message that domestic violence crimes should be punished severely. He said Gitney murdered Lisa in a way that he could claim she died by suicide. If not for Josh Rathmel's testimony and the cameras showing Gitney dragging Lisa back inside, her death might have been ruled a suicide. By throwing her off the balcony, Tedeschi said Gitney was showing no regard for Lisa or anyone else on the sidewalk below the balcony. He said this murder belonged in the mid-range of murder offenses, and he asked for a 20-year sentence. Strickland said the mid-range category was too harsh. He reminded the court that Rachel Louise testified that her and Gitney's relationship had exhibited no abuse or violence. On the morning of February 11th, McCollum said that Gitney was not eligible for a life sentence, which was reserved for the worst offenses or murder cases with multiple victims. She said the defense's theory that the relationship between Rachel and Gitney was not abusive held no merit. She could see for herself the rage that Gitney had toward Lisa leading up to her death. McCollum said that since Gitney's family was his greatest support, none of them would accept that he was responsible for Lisa's death. According to New South Wales Supreme Court documents, McCollum said, I am not persuaded that family support will conduce in any way to rehabilitation. On the contrary, support in that form will only fortify the defiance with which Mr. Gitney refuses to accept the smallest responsibility for the death of Lisa Harnum, which he and the family persist in describing as a tragic accident. I am not persuaded that any prospect of rehabilitation exists in this case to be taken into account as a mitigating factor. As reported by Amy Dale, she then asked Gitney to stand and said, Simon Gitney, I sentence you to a term of imprisonment with a non-parole of 18 years, commencing on 21 May 2013, and a balance of term of eight years commencing on 21 May 2031, and expiring on 20 May 2039. The first date on which you will be eligible for release to parole is 21 May 2031. Upon learning Gitney's sentence, people in the courtroom clapped. According to an article by Jessa Gruel in the Sunshine Coast Daily, one woman yelled to Gitney, over the balcony you go. As reported by Amy Dale, one of Gitney's sisters yelled to Justice McCollum, in the name of Jesus Christ, he won't do any of that time. McCollum ordered Gitney's sisters removed from the courtroom. Due to how thorough and well-crafted Justice McCollum's sentencing brief was written, Gitney struggled to find representation for his appeal. Neither Strickland nor Bannister agreed to represent him, and other barristers who were contacted also declined. Eventually, Stephen Odgers agreed to represent Gitney. In June of 2016, Odgers filed his appeal to overturn the conviction, arguing that Josh Rathmel's testimony was unreliable. McCollum erred in dismissing Dr. Kemp's testimony and that the verdict was unreasonable. On August 18th, Gitney lost his appeal in a unanimous decision by the New South Wales Court of Criminal Appeals. 
By the time Gitney received this news, his relationship with Rachel Louise, who had promised to stay by his side until justice prevailed, was over. Today, Gitney is incarcerated at Parklea Correctional Center in Sydney, Australia, where he works as a sweeper, cleaning toilets and showers. His earliest possible release date is December of 2031. At that time, Gitney will be 57 years old. The Lisa Harnum Foundation was established in order to provide resources, education, and support for victims of domestic abuse. You can visit lisahf.org.au for more information. The irony in this case is that if Simon Gitney had not installed video cameras inside of their apartment, it's possible that he just might have gotten away with murder. In the end, his extremely controlling and abusive nature, which culminated in him watching Lisa Harnum's every move, ultimately led to his undoing. If you or anyone you know are experiencing intimate partner abuse, help is available by calling 1-800-799-SAFE or by texting START to 88788. You can also go to thehotline.org. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Murderish. If you have 60 seconds of free time, do me the biggest favor and give Murderish a five-star rating and review in your favorite podcast app. Positive ratings and reviews help new listeners find the show, and I love hearing from you guys. Also, follow me on Instagram at Murderish Podcast. It's my favorite place to engage with listeners. You can also find me on Twitter and on Facebook. Check out Murderish.com if you want to buy Murderish t-shirts, face masks, coffee mugs, and more. If you want more Murderish content, go to Murderish.com and click the link to go behind the scenes and become a Patreon subscriber. Patreon subscribers get immediate access to bonus content as well as other perks. Thank you to Laura S. for becoming a Patreon subscriber. I really appreciate you. Murderish sound design and audio editing is by Justin Hellstrom. Some of the music was composed by Miko of We Talk of Dreams. This episode was researched and written by Steve Field. Sources for this episode can be found at Murderish.com. As always, Ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this podcast does not make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.